Welcome to the Dink Justice Podcast. Join us for high adventures exploring true drug crimes, conspiracies, legends, and the murder surrounding them. Today we are talking about Joaquin Archivaldo Guzman Lorera, also known as El Rapido, but most commonly known as El Chapo. Yay, I've been excited for this because like everybody knows like some basic facts about him, but a lot of people don't know you know, like his backstory and really how he, like, he's just this infamous figure. So I'm super excited. He was born April 4th, 1957, which makes him 64 years old. Up until his most recent trial, there was a lot of uncertainty over his date of birth. Some people, there were two different dates, the one in April and then another date in December of 56 that was thrown around as well they have decided to go with the april 4th 1957 one because um multiple people under test sworn testimony gave april 4th 1957 as his date of birth so like why does he have two dates of birth is it like a weird secret thing for i wasn't really able to tell um, I really looked into it because I was like, what mm-hmm. the heck? Because that is weird. Um, yeah. From what I can tell is that not a lot of records were really kept around that time where he was born. Mm-hmm. And he just never really corrected anyone when they gave a wrong date of birth because he didn't really want people to know about him. You know, if you yeah. stay a ghost, then you don't get caught. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So. He got his nickname El Chapo because he is considered short. He is five foot six inches, which is how tall I am. We're the same height. Um, (laughs) And so he was short and kind of stocky and Mm -hmm. Chapo means shorty. So he's the shorty. He (laughs) was born and raised in Latuna, Sinaloa, Mexico. And his parents were, his father was Emilio Guzman Bustilos. And his mother, Maria Consuela Lorera Perez. He is the fourth oldest of 10 children. Oh, wow. That's a huge family. Large family. His older three brothers, I searched and searched and searched, and nowhere has their names. They died while El Chapo was young. And mm-hmm. so they've just kind of remained unnamed ever since. Yeah. Well, because he probably, they, it's like, oh, they don't have to do with the legend and the story, which is sad. It is but... so sad. Um, he's got two younger, younger sisters, Armida and Bernarda, and four younger brothers, Miguel Angel, Arellano, Arturo, and Emilio. There's not a whole lot known about his upbringing. We've been mm-hmm. able, I've been able to piece some of it together through various sources. And um, they say that he was a practical joker, really liked to pull pranks. Um, mm-hmm. He sold oranges to help his family because his family was really impoverished um, yeah. uh, and not very wealthy. And he dropped, it said he's dropped out of school in the third grade to help their father on their cattle farm. Um, wow officially his father Emilio was a cattle rancher however 
as is common in Latuna, it's said that he was also a gomero or a poppy farmer and a marijuana farmer. Um, uh, poppy being opium. Mm-hmm. So his father was abusive and regularly beat El Chapo. And it's said that Joaquin would stand up to his father when he tried to beat his little siblings and even would sometimes take the beatings meant for his siblings on himself. When he really couldn't stand it, he would escape to his grandparents' house, most often to his mother's mother, Pomposa. Um, They had a really good relationship, as well as El Chapo and his mother had a really good relationship, and he would visit her until his capture. Yeah. Um, as often as he was able to. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a very, and I mean, I'll, I'm speaking obviously as a white woman, but that seems to be very common. I've found in like the Hispanic culture and the Latino culture in general. I don't just want to limit it to that. The Latinx co- culture of very family oriented, very family driven, and you know kids love their moms and they are very they have that very close relationship so absolutely that that just seems so common in the latinx culture and i'm glad that i mean it's like one of those things where you're like oh it seems so normal (laughs) it does it does it seems so normal employment like i said employment in latuna was there wasn't a lot of options and many turned to growing opium poppies and to growing and harvesting marijuana and while he was little, he and his brothers would run all over the Madre Mountains to harvest the buds. They would run up and down and harvest, and they would stack them pallets high, and his father would go and sell them off to suppliers. And his father, it said that, you know, Joaquin would go with him to sell sell these off to the suppliers, and he would watch his father spend most, if not all, of the money that he had on women and liquor and bring back little to no money back to the family to take care of him. And El Chapo became tired of that. He was tired of the mismanagement. He was tired of seeing his family be impoverished and not gain from all of the work they're doing. Mm -hmm. So when he was 15, him and some cousins grew and harvested their own marijuana plantation and they supported their family with it he continued to do that and he decided that there was there had to be more out there there had to be more out there so unlike a lot of the others from Altoona who stayed and worked on the poppy fields and the marijuana fields for their entire lives he left in his 20s he like I said he wanted more he Mm -hmm. used connections through his uncle Padre Averas Perez who is if you look him up, he's a pioneer of the Mexican drug trafficking. And oh, we, I think he's definitely on our list of people to talk about. <laughs> he sure is. He sure is. But Al Chapo used him and he joined organized crime. It speaks so much to poverty. Like, because I mean, you see the same things in the inner cities in America. You see, I mean, and that poverty drives that need for crime and it's so so sad absolutely when you see it like if if that's all you see and that's all you know I was watching a documentary um because I feel like most of my life has become drug crime documentaries yeah Um, no I I agree (laughs) yeah I was watching a um what's it called it's called dope 
it's on Netflix. It's just a couple series. Okay. And there was one one high up dealer and she you know she's like I've been in this since I was 11 my mom Mm -hmm. was a drug dealer there was just no other choice this Mm -hmm. is what I knew this is what I was good at and so this is where I'm at yeah and it and it was repeated by so many in there it's so common oh yeah so El Chapo's early career in organized crime he started by working with Hector Palma also known as El Guro which means the blonde. And he started transporting and helping oversee shipments from the Sierra Matra region, which is where he was born right there in Sinaloa. That's where mm-hmm. he ran around in the mountains gathering poppy. Um, okay. So they saw shipments from there to the U.S. and over the border with aircraft. But he was always ambitious and he always pushed to increase the shares of smuggling and do more and get more and to be able to have more money and more worth and more. He wanted to be a boss even while he was low. And he was violent. So very, very violent. And I think you see this in a lot. You see this in so many drug crimes, but he was violent. And he, if somebody crossed their back on him if somebody um tried to cheat him or if even if somebody if people decided to go with competitors because they had a lower price he would have none of it and it ended with a shot to the head and he would just take that out and take you out and he would then continue doing what he was doing Mm. um and i mean that comes from the history of abuse too like does it's it's crazy because it's like these are all drug crimes but you see so many similarities to other crimes in these same crimes and I've been discovering that as we've been doing research for this that it's like you see a lot of those same things Mm -hmm. absolutely I think I think a lot of it comes with the impoverishment and Mm -hmm. the and the and the poverty and just the community that's around there yeah so in the 80s, the Guadalajara cartel leaders, they took notice of Guzman and how he went his business and how he was working and how he wanted all of this. Um, and the Guadalajara cartel was the leading crime syndicate in Mexico at the time. Um, they were headed by Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who is also known as the Godfather author or El Padrino. Okay. Um, also Rafael Caro Quintero. Quintero. Ernesto Fernesca Carlio, also known as Don Neto, Juan Jose Carrillo. Carrillo. Oh, yeah. I knew I was going to butcher some of these. I've been practicing, no, but not all I of them work. <laughs> Carrillo. Thank you. Duolingo. <laughs> yes. oh, I, was, I, I Googled a lot of these to yeah. try to figure it out, but just like I couldn't, for some reason, I couldn't say the Sierra Madre reason region for the <laughs> longest time i was like it's just madre i can't do it <laughs> so this is my favorite alias just because i'm i don't know i'm that person i love blue but juan jose Espargoza moreno also known as el zoo el azul <laughs> or the blue one i love there were that. others but those were kind of the highest ones and those were the ones that he worked with the most that um, El Chapo works with the most. Mm -hmm. So 
after working with Hector for a while, he was introduced to Felix Gallardo and became a chauffeur for a time. Um, Gallardo really liked him and kind of promoted him as, you know, El Chapo kind of pushed for more. Mm-hmm. And he was put in charge of logistics and coordinating the drug shipments from Colombia to Mexico via land, air, sea. And then Hector, Pal- Hector Palma ensured the deliveries arrived in the U.S. So Palma and El Chapo kind of grew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And for most of the late, for most of the last, oh, tripping on words for the last <laughs> of the 80s and most of the early last of the 70s and most of the early 80s Mexican You're not even high <laughs> I'm not even high I'm not even drinking alcohol I've got water today <sighs> I know I'm drinking water too but <laughs> there should be no reason I'm tripping over my words but so let's try this all again for most of the last of the I think it's just how I have it written. Yeah, I think it is. I I've think it's a written just word. like you're missing a word for most. I am. For no, you switched it. Wait, for most of the last seventies. I know. <laughs> I don't know how I said that. Okay, <laughs> but um, maybe for most of the hang on. End so in, in the end of yeah, I think so. In the <laughs> end of the seventies and early of the early eighties, Mexican drug traffickers, middlemen were middlemen in the Colombian trafficking for Colombian trafficking of cocaine. There we go. That line was hard. I wrote it weird. (laughs) Yeah, you did. Um, Um, They were a secondary route because the Caribbean and the Florida corridor were easier and they were quicker, which meant more money. mm -hmm. But then in the mid eighties, the DEA, the USDEA started to crack down on that and they put pressure on the Medellin and the Cali cartels and that slowed the trafficking through those corridors by a lot they realized that it was a lot more profitable to hand over the operations to the Mexican counterparts and so the Colombian cartels gave Felix Gallardo um, and his friend Juan Ramon Mattel Balestros, more control over the drug shipments. And this created such a powerful shift in the Mexican crime groups and their Central and South American counterparts. Um, one, mm. one undercover DEA agent who we are going to cover, Enrique mm-hmm. Camarina Salazar, also known as Kiki, worked his way close to many of the Guadalajaran cartel leaders, including Felix Gallardo. And in November of 1984, he provided information to the Mexican military, which led to a raid on Rancho Buffalo, a large marijuana plantation. When this raid happened, Felix suspected betrayal and was furious. And so his men and him kidnapped, tortured, and killed Kiki. They, like I said, were furious and mm-hmm. they wanted to put an end to that leak. In return to Kiki's death, the U.S. and Mexico went on a large-scale manhunt to arrest all of those involved, and Felix was arrested in 1989. This gave Guzman 
a way to better position himself and take over more operations. It's said that this is when he was officially named a drug boss. So the Guadalajara cartel split into three territories after Felix Gallardo's mm-hmm. arrest. So the Ariano Felix brothers took control of the Tijuana Quarter and parts of Baja California and the Chihuahua State. A group controlled by Carrillo Fuentes family formed the Juarez Cartel. The last faction, the third territory, was the Sinaloa and the Pacific Coast, and they formed the Sinaloa Cartel. Super inventive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they... The heads of that cartel were Ishmael Zambada, a.k.a. El Mayo, which from Rancho Buffalo to El Mayo, which is right. a giggle. Um, <laughs> and then you had Palma and Guzman. Guzman specifically was in charge of the drug corridors of Tiquet, Baja California, Mexicali, and San Luis Rio, Colorado. It was two border crossings that connected the states of Sonora and Baja California with the U.S. states of Arizona and California. According to Malcolm Beath in the last narco inside the hunt of El Chapo, the world's most wanted drug The first time Guzman was detected by U.S. authorities for his involvement in organized crime was in 1987, when several protected witnesses testified in a U.S. court that Guzman was, in fact, heading the Sinaloa cartel. So his name finally starts popping up. Yeah. And in indictment. That doesn't seem that long ago, really. No, it doesn't seem that long ago, but at the same time, it also feels ages ago if he left. Let's see. He was born in 57. Yeah. Left Latuno in his 20s, which would be 77. So he's been in the game for about 12 years at this point. Yeah. Give or take if I did my numbers right. Yeah. That's so crazy. To me, that seems like a long time in the drug world to go unknown. Yeah. So um, there was an an. Indictment issued in the state of Arizona that alleged Guzman had coordinated the shipment of 20 or of excuse me of 2,000 kilograms of marijuana, which is about 4,400 pounds. Jesus. And about 4,700 kilograms or 10,400 pounds of cocaine from Double October. Jesus. Oh my I God. So much. <laughs> And that's from October 19th, 1987 to May 18th of 1990, just under three years. And he allegedly received roughly 1.5 million US dollars in drug proceeds that were shipped back to his home state in Sinaloa. There was another indictment that alleged Guzman earned approximately 100 thousand u.s dollars for trafficking seventy thousand pounds of cocaine and an unspecified amount of marijuana in the period of three years so my one walk away from this is and people think america has a marijuana problem (laughs) look at those numbers of cocaine that is coming into huge huge and that is just what the Sinaloa cartel brought in yeah that doesn't include any of the other cartels that doesn't include what came through um Europe there was actually a lot that came through Europe Europe China yeah um, Yeah. any of that you know that's all just Mexico that's That's just that's just and that's just Sinaloa that's just one cartel oh my god it's insane. So, yeah. Guzman 
like transported and trafficked all of this through a combination of aircraft going over land, sea, and he had his own sophisticated idea that some of these pictures, Pua, mm. I have looked at them. They are so sophisticated. He used underground tunnels. They would be air conditioned. They would have lights. Um, later on, you'll see one where there's a motorcycle in it oh, on a track. Oh my gosh. It sophisticated. And they would just go under the border, pop up in the middle of nowhere or in a construction zone or um, whatever whatever get in a car and the border patrol had no idea that is insane like I guess I've seen the pictures but I I, like it's one of those things that you look at them and you're like ah that's over exaggerated or but oh my goodness god well when I first heard about these I was like oh tunnels underground like let me like army crawl through it no like you can stand up they would have carts to go from one side to the other like I said air conditioned can't even get an air conditioning in my house half the time one way they brought cocaine in is they would pack cocaine into chili pepper cans under the brand la comadre and they were shipped to the u.s by train and truck in 1989 armando lopez aka el reo was sent over to the tijuana cartel to speak with the erlano felix clan so el reo is from the sinaloa cartel and he was sent over to the erlano felix clan in tijuana to speak over there now there are different accounts of why he was sent over there some say that he was sent for a birthday party some say that he went over there because one of the one of the brothers in the Felix clan tried to run away to Canada, got caught, and spread some secrets. So there's conflicting stories about why he was sent mm-hmm. over there. But Lopez was killed by Roman Arlano Felix, and he was dumped in the outskirts of the city of Tijuana. And there was a hit put on Lopez's family, so they wouldn't Ooh. try to come after him. And this is what started the Tijuana cartel conflicts. Okay, the Sinaloa cartel. And they lasted from 1989 to 1993, and they were vicious. It essentially ended when there was a hit put out on Guzman. And instead of killing Guzman, the Tijuana cartel killed a cardinal and an archbishop Mm -hmm. of Guadalajara. And Guzman escaped the church and public and politicians were outraged at this obviously oh yeah outraged at this senseless murder of an of an innocent yeah and especially of like an archbishop where once again just speaking from kind of my observance like i know that catholicism is very very big in i believe just mexico especially and so yeah i can imagine so bounties of five million u.s dollars for each person involved were put out on their heads And Guzman's face, who was previously pretty much unknown, had his face plastered everywhere. He fled to Tonala, to Jalisco, and then into Mexico City. He gave one of his people 200 million U.S. dollars to take care of his family and another 200 million U.S. dollars to somebody else to help run the cartel while he was gone. Just take, you know. $400 million to do things. I was like, here you go. (laughs) He figured he would be on the run for a while, which is why he was like, yeah, that'll that'll work for a while. And so he obtained a fake passport under the name Jorge Ramos Perez. 
and he went to Guatemala on June 4th of 93. He was followed and he was tracked and he was like, well, let me try and pay off this Guatemalan police officer. He gave this Guatemalan police officer 1.2 million US dollars. If you're counting, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So, so far he has spent 401.2 million dollars trying to escape. That doesn't include his travel, his food, buying the passport. He's probably 500 million at least because he already has 400 million. (laughs) Jesus. This Guatemalan police officer who chooses to remain unnamed for obvious reasons. Well, yeah. Tipped off the Guatemalan army and Guzman was arrested June 9th of 93, just south of the Guatemala-Mexico border. And he was extradited, let's see if I can say it, I've been practicing it, to Almoloya. Nope, that didn't sound right. Almoloya. We're just going to sound it out. De Juarez, state of Mexico. I'm a very white person who did not take Spanish. So he was extradited from Guatemala to Mexico two days later. So this is now the 11th of 93. And he went to the Federal Social React- Readaptation Center number one, also known as La Palma or Altiplano. It was a max security prison. He was sentenced to 20 years, nine months in prison on charges of drug trafficking, criminal association, bribery. I was also convicted, and he was convicted of three crimes, possession of firearms, drug craft trafficking, and the murder of the cardinal. That charge was later dismissed by another judge, but that's what he was convicted with at that point. But only 20 years for like all of that? Only 20 years, nine months. That's it. That's insane. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with bribes. Mm -hmm. And corruption and... And corruption and being paid off and all of that. I have no proof of that. I wasn't (laughs) finding anything. I'm not able to find anything to support that. So on November 22nd of 1995, he was transferred to another maximum security prison. This is called the Federal Center of Social Rehabilitation Number 2. It was also known as Puente Grande. Even while in prison, Guzman was still considered a major international drug trafficker. In essence, it was almost like he wasn't incarcerated incarcerated at all. Guzman's associates brought him cash to bribe prison workers, and he lived a lavish lifestyle and controlled the cartel. The guards in almost acted like his servants, and the Sinaloa cartel seemed unstoppable and continued to operate unabated. While Guzman was inside the penitentiary running things, his brother Arturo Guzman Lorera, aka El Polo, aka the chicken. Yes. <laughs> the shorty and chicken. I don't, I don't know how they get these, these was who let it outside. So in 2001, Guzman was indicted in San Diego on U.S. charges of money laundering, importing tons of cocaine into California, and was supposed to be extradited to the U.S. Instead, Guzman was like, ah, no thanks. I'm done with this whole prison lifestyle and bribed his guards to aid him in his escape. So on January 19, 2001, Guzman's cell door was opened by a guard electronically, and he climbed into a laundry cart where a maintenance worker named Javier Cambaros rolled him out of the door to a waiting car. Guzman climbed into the trunk and Cambaros into the driver's seat and away they went. The story is that Guzman told the guards he was smuggling gold that had been extracted from rocks in the inmate workshop out of the prison. Whether or not they knew it was Guzman or a person rather than gold, I have no idea. It's never been confirmed. Okay, that's crazy. 
crazy. So they didn't think that he was escaping. He just thought that they were that. He's like, oh, let me get some gold out. I'll stay in prison. Don't worry. I'll, I'll make sure you get the cut. Javier Campos and Joaquin Guzman are driving away in the car, Guzman in the trunk, all of that. Mm-hmm. And eventually Campos had to stop for petrol. Mm-hmm. So he's at the station. He goes in to pay. And Guzman climbed out of the trunk and escaped into the night on foot. For those of you who do not live in the UK, petrol is gasoline. (laughs) Malcolm Beath again in The Last Narco, he states that 78 people were implemented in the escape plan and Camberos, for his part in the escape, is in prison. I mean, as he should be. In addition to bribing the guards a maintenance worker to aid his escape, Guzman allegedly played off the Jalisco police to give him 24 hours before they started searching for him so he could stay ahead of the manhunt. All in all, it's said to have cost Guzman $2.5 million to escape. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And then you back all of that up with the all the money he was spending before this boy definitely went from like hopper to prince he sure did he spent about eight years in prison before he escaped (laughs) at the time of guzman's arrest back in 93 the sinaloa cartel was the wealthiest and most powerful drug syndicate and crime syndicate in mexico they smuggled multi-tons of coke from colombia through mexico now to put this in perspective one ton is two thousand pounds and they smuggled multi-tons And that's just coke that doesn't include poppy that doesn't include marijuana there was distribution shells throughout the u.s and in fact the sinaloa cartel operates in 1286 cities and towns in the u.s the sinaloa cartel also smuggled and distributed methamphetamine marijuana and heroin from southeast asia oh my gosh june 23rd 1995 about two years after guzman is arrested his partner hector palma was arrested and was successfully extradited to the U.S. At that point, even while in jail, Guzman took over leadership of the entire Sinaloa cartel. According to an article written by Silvia Otero and translated with the help of Google Translate, named El Chapo S. El Narco Mas Pajeros del Mundo from El Universal, quote, After Guzman's prison escape nearly a decade after his initial arrest, he and a close associate, Ismael Zambada Garcia, became Mexico's undisputed top drug kingpins after the 2003 arrest of their rival Osil Cardenas of the Gulf Cartel. Until Guzman's arrest in 2014, he was considered the most powerful drug trafficker in the world by the U.S. Department of the Treasury. End quote. Put it basically, as you can probably tell, Guzman was a billionaire. Yeah. And continued to grow. In 2011, Forbes even ranked Guzman as Mexico's 10th richest man and the 1,140th in the world. Did you that person making that list going to their boss sir how accurate do we want this well or ma'am could be either either way how accurate do you want this well why are you asking well because this is mexico's 10th richest man (laughs) from my understanding it was eventually taken back as there is no way to officially oh gotcha say yeah. how much he earned um but Listen to you. again that's still a feat to yeah. earn. 
Um, the U.S. DEA considered Guzman to be the godfather of the drug world. And they stated that his influence surpassed the reach of Pablo Escobar. And we have him coming up too. Oh, he sure is coming yeah. up. Um, my favorite and the most mind-boggling to me is that in 2013, Chicago Crime Commission named Guzman public enemy number one. He, for uh, two reasons, this mind boggles me. One, the last person to have seen to receive this title was Al Capone in 1930. And two, Guzman had never even been to Chicago. Oh, wow. That's crazy. But I mean, there, there, I'm sure there's a lot of like drug influence up there. And a lot of some of those, you said they were operating in cities. I'm sure Chicago is one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is crazy. I don't, you all can't see my face, but my mouth literally like dropped. <laughs> I, I, I told you my favorite and most shocking was that one. Yeah. It, wow. Yeah. According to an article in the Washington Post by Joshua Partlow and Nick Miroffs, um, it says that at the time of Guzman's second arrest in 2014, he was, quote, the man who supplied more illegal drugs to the United States than anyone else on earth, end quote. Oh, my god! And, whoa. Yeah. Um, they, the Sinaloa cartel, like I said, was powerful mm -hmm. and they just continued to grow um, as the Mexican government cracked down on the cartels the Sinaloa cartel kind of moved in on their land and took over the land and um, it said that although many other cartels were cracked down and you know the leaders were arrested mm -hmm. they took damage mm -hmm. that the Sinaloa cartel was left mostly unscathed again where the corruption comes in that can't be proved. not sure how that works <laughs> but um, after the fall of the miscu mezcua brothers who are the founders of the kalima cartel in 99 um they were brought down on methamphetamine trafficking charges there was a huge demand for leadership throughout Mexico. Um, they needed people to continue doing these shipments of methamphetamine. And Guzman was like, huh, I see an opportunity and took it over. Um, so Guzman used his and Ishmael Zambada Garcia's, again, El Mayo, um, contacts on the Mexico's Pacific coast and for the first time, the Colombians would not have to be paid. So this was a big shift. Mm -hmm. um, they simply joined the methamphetamine they were getting with cocaine, with cocaine shipments. And that meant there was no additional money for needed for airplanes or pilots or boats or bribes. There was already existing infrastructure to basically pipeline the new product to wherever they wanted it. It was, in essence, an easy takeover. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, this was, although Guzman worked with El Mayo, this was basically Guzman's venture alone. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't really joint. There was a little bit of back and forth, but 
it was mostly Guzman's. He cultivated the ties in China and Thailand and India to import the needed chemicals to build methamphetamine labs. Um, He started building in Sinaloa, Durang, Jalisco, Michoacan, Neret, and he ended up operating in 17 of the 31 Mexican states. And it has only grown since then. He was the boss of the bosses. Yeah. Since his 2001 escape from prison, Guzman wanted more control. He always just wanted more, 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 more power, Mm -hmm. more money more influence Mm -hmm. he knew that if he was at the top and he was able to control this all then and if he was able to do it kind of behind the scenes he would be sad Mm -hmm. so he wanted his hands on the cuidad of water's crossing points Mm -hmm. which at the time were in the hands of the carrillo fuentes family of the juarez cartel and there was a lot of distrust between the Sinaloa and the Juarez cartels. Um, the Juarez cartels were more aligned with the Tijuana cartels, but there was some working relationship mm-hmm. between Sinaloa and Juarez cartels. They had a working agreement at the time. And so they ended up having a meeting. Um, and in this meeting, they discussed killing Rodolfo Carrillo Fuentes, who was in charge of the Juarez cartel at the time. And on September 11th, 2004, Rodolfo, Rodolfo, his wife, and two young children visiting a Culiacan shopping mall were ambushed by members of Los Nuragos, who were assassins for the Sinaloa cartel, and they were killed. And that is how the city was no longer controlled by the Curiel Fuentes family. Instead, Culiacan found themselves on the front line of the Mexican drug war. And homicide skyrocketed as rival cartels fought for control. With this act, Guzman was the first to break what was considered a non-aggression pact the major cartels had agreed to. And it set to motion the fighting between the cartels for drug routes, which has since claimed excuse me, more than 60,000 lives just since December of 2006. That's crazy. This number still grows. In December of 2006, Felipe Caldron took office as the new Mex, as the new. Mexican president uh-huh. and he announced a crackdown on cartels um, by the Mexican military because he wanted to stem the increasing violence mm-hmm. um, after four years additional efforts didn't really do much it didn't slow the flow of drugs it didn't mm-hmm. stop any of the killings and of the 53,000 arrests made as of 2010 only 1,000 involved associates of the Sinaloa cartel. Oh my gosh. And this led to lots of suspicions that Calderon was intentionally allowing the Sinaloa to, cartel to win this drug war. Um, he obviously denied mm-hmm. it. And he used 
um, killing the top Sinaloa deputy mm-hmm. who was Nacho Coron- Coronel mm-hmm. as evidence that he wasn't in the pocket of the Sinaloa cartel. Now, Sinaloa's rival cartels, um, they saw these shifts. Mm-hmm. And it started a conflict. Not that the drug wars weren't already a conflict. Yeah. But it continued more. Um, a Newsweek investigation alleges that one of Guzman's techniques for maintaining his dominance among cartels, including giving information to the DEA and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that arrested a lot of his enemies in the Waters cartel. These arrests were kind of speculated by some to have been part of a deal Guzman struck with Caldron and the DEA, in which he intentionally gave up some Sinaloa colleagues to the U.S. agents uh, agents in exchange for immunity. Okay. It's not quite sure if that's really what happened, because remember, at this point, Guzman's still on the lam. Mm-hmm. Um, however that's what's being said and it if it happened however they got it this information became a key factor in influencing the breakdown between the Sinaloa cartel and the Beltrain Leva brothers these five this was five brothers who served as Guzman's top lieutenants Mm -hmm. whether Guzman was responsible for Alfredo Beltran's arrest is not known like I said we haven't ever been able to confirm that however the Beltran Levas and their allies suspect that he was behind it. And after Alfredo's Beltran's arrest, a formal war was declared. Before this, the drug wars were just kind of about land. Yeah. And it became official. Ooh. There was bad blood. An attempt on the life of the cartel head Zambada's son, Vincent Zambada Niebla, was made only hours after the declaration of There was dozens of killings followed in retaliation for the attempt, and the Beltrán Leve brothers ordered the assassination of Guzman's son, Edgar Guzman López, on the Mar- on May eighth of two thousand eight. Following the killing of Guzman's son Edgar, violence increased, and from the eighth of May through the end of the month, over one hundred and sixteen people were murdered in Culiacán. 26 of them were police officers. In June 2008, over 128 were killed. Wow. In July, 143 were slain. An additional deployment of 2,000 troops in the area failed to stop this turf war. The wave of violence spread. They went to other cities such as Guevse, Mastelan, and more. So while that's all going on, the first manhunt for Guzman is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Guzman was known among other drug lords for his longevity and his invasion of the authorities. And this was assisted by allegedly bribing federal, state, and local Mexican officials. Mm-hmm. Despite the progress made in arresting others in the aftermath of Guzman's escape, including a handful of his foremost logistics and security men, the huge military and federal police manhunt failed to capture Guzman for years. In the years between his escape and his capture, he was Mexico's most wanted man. 
and pretty high up there on the U.S. Oh, yeah. Men as well. <laughs> I couldn't find out exactly how high, but I'm sure it was up there. Oh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> His elusiveness from law enforcement made him nearly legendary, a nearly legendary figure mm-hmm. in Mexico's narcotics folklore. And people seemed to be split about whether they thought he was a hero or not because he did bring in money to the areas he did you know boost them up so they weren't so impoverished Mm -hmm. there were stories abound that guzman sometimes strolled into restaurants and there's stories about his bodyguards confiscating people's cell phones um, and he would eat his meal and he would leave paying everybody's tab for more than 13 years mexican security forces coordinated many operations to re-arrest him but their efforts were largely in vain as Guzman appeared to be steps ahead of his captors and was never recaptured. Although his whereabouts were pretty unknown, the authorities thought he was likely hiding in what's considered the Golden Triangle. This is an area that encompasses Sinaloa, Durango, and Chihuahua in the Sierra Madre region. Again, this is where he grew up. It's Mm -hmm. where he knows best. Um, The region, like I said, is a major producer of marijuana and opium poppies in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and its remoteness from the urban areas make it an attractive territory for the production of synthetic drugs and and clandestine laboratories and for its mountains that offer potential hideouts. There are so many places for him to hide out, and it's close to his mom, Mm -hmm. which he's quoted in other articles that stating that he went to visit his mom as much as he was able, which would make sense that he would be close to her. Guzman reportedly commanded a sophisticated security security circle of at least 300 informants and gunmen, resembling the manpower equivalent to those of a head of state. His inner circle would help him move around through several isolated ranches in the mountainous area to avoid capture. He usually escaped from law enforcement using armored cars, aircraft, all-terrain vehicles, and was known to employ sophisticated communications, gadget gadgetry, and counter-espionage practices. Since many of the the locations in the Golden Triangle were only accessible by single-track dirt roads, local residents easily detected the arrival of law enforcement or any other outsiders, and their distrust towards them and aversion towards the government, alongside bribery and intimidation, helped keep the locals loyal to Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel in the area. According to law enforcement intelligence, attempting to have launched an attack to capture Guzman by air would have had similar results. His security circle would have warned him of the presence of an aircraft 10 minutes away from Guzman's location and gave him ample time to escape the scene and avoid arrest. In addition to his gunmen, he reportedly carried, excuse me, in addition, his gunmen reportedly carried service to air missiles that may bring down aircraft in the area. So they just had freaking rocket launchers on their shoulders to shoot people out of the sky. Oh my goodness. I was watching a documentary on the Sinaloa cartel on um, ID Discovery. Mm -hmm. And there was one piece where they were out there working on mm-hmm. in the Sonaloa area, in the Madre Mountains, and they had multiple rocket rocket launchers. And 
one of the people this journalist was speaking to stated that he had used that rocket launcher and taken multiple aircrafts out of the air. Oh my God. So I'm sure it wasn't anything new. Yeah, that's just crazy though. I couldn't even imagine. Although Guzman had been hidden for long periods in the remote areas of the Sierra Madre Mountains without being captured, the arrested members of his security team told the military he had begun venturing out to Culiacan and the beach town of Mazatlan. A week before he was caught, Guzman and Zambada were reported to have attended a family reunion in Sinaloa. On February 16, 2014, the Mexican military followed the bodyguard's tip to Guzman's former wife's house. But they had trouble ramming the steel-reinforced front door, which allowed Guzman to escape through his secret tunnels. These tunnels connected to six houses. Oh my gosh. And he eventually, they connected to six houses, eventually moving moving south to Mazatlan. So it's Mazatlan? Mazatlan. Uh-huh. There we go. I've been there. <laughs> uh-huh. That's how you yes. know. <laughs> He had planned to only stay a few days in Mazatlan to see his twin baby daughters before retreating back to the mountains. On February 22nd, 2014, around 6.40 a.m., Mexican authorities arrested Guzman at a hotel in a beachfront area of the Mazatlan, following an operation by the Mexican Navy with joint intelligence from the U.S., from the DEA and the U.S. Marshal Service. A few days before his capture, Mexican authorities had been raiding several properties owned by the members of the Sinaloa cartel who were close to Guzman throughout the state of Sinaloa, basically slowly trying to take down his his power. Mm -hmm. And the operation leading to his capture began at 3.45 a.m. when 10 pickup trucks carrying Mexican Navy of the Mexican Navy carrying over 65 Marines made their way to the resort area. Guzman was hiding at the Miramar condominiums and Mexican and U.S. federal agents that had leads that the drug lord had been located at this location for at least two days and that he was staying in the condominium's fourth floor in room 401. When the Mexican authorities arrived at the location, they quickly subdued one of Guzman's bodyguards before quietly making their way to the fourth floor by elevators and stairs. Once they were at Guzman's front door, they broke into the apartment, stormed its two rooms, and in one of the rooms was Guzman, lying in bed with his wife. Their two daughters were reportedly to have been in the condominium during their arrest. Guzman physically tried to resist arrest, but he did not attempt to grab a rifle he had close to him. Amid the quarrel with the Marines, the drug lord was hit four times, and by 6.40 a.m., he was arrested, taken to the ground floor, walked to the condominium's parking lot, where the first photos of his capture were taken. His identity was confirmed through a fingerprint examination immediately following his capture, and he was then flown straight to Mexico City for formal identification. According to the Mexican government, no shots were fired during the operation, which I think is... Amazing. Yeah, I agree. Like, we know that he's violent and hasn't cared in the past. So I wonder if, like, maybe having his wife and children there maybe made a little bit of difference. Guzman was presented in front of the cameras during a press conference in Mexico City International Airport that, af- airport that afternoon. He was then transferred to the Federal Social Readaptation Center Number 1, where, if you remember, this is where he first yeah. was. This isn't where he escaped. This is where he was first taken. He was taken on a federal police Black Hawk helicopter 
Uh, the helicopter was escorted by two Navy helicopters and one from the Mexican Air Force. Oh Surveillance inside the penitentiary and surrounding areas was increased by a large contingent of law enforcement. Um, but I mean, it's inescapable, right? Well, I mean, we do have a part two. Ooh, that's right. Tune in in a couple weeks and find out how unescapable it may be. Inescapable, maybe? Inescapable, unescapable, indestructible. Just kidding. (laughs) That's not the word I was just about to say, and I'm the stoned one. Like, (laughs) anyway, tune in in two weeks for part two of El Chapo. Yes. And when you're thirsting for some more dank content. I don't know. That was bad. <laughs> Hit us up on Instagram at Dank Justice Podcast. At Twitter at Dig Justice. Or email us at dankjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, leave a review, five-star rate us. We are on Apple, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, Google, all of the fun ones. Yeah, just look for us. You'll find us somewhere. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I am stoned. And I'm pretty sober. (laughs) See you in two weeks. Bye. recording other awesome announcement which is not really a stoner moment mess up but like a stony moment celebration we are on spotify and apple podcast now yeah find us on there especially if you're listening on apple podcast please like us follow us leave a review rate us all of it that really helps us get the word out and share to more people i know so many podcasts come out and say like subscribe comment on apple but podcasts come from ipod so this is the way we can become something that you can eventually maybe come see with live shows exactly and it really helps all of the algorithms like if you follow us any interaction you do with our social media or mm-hmm. our posts would really boost us to help help get us out to other people and that's yes. what we want to do exactly we want to be able to spread drug crimes myths mysterious all of that mysterious so, love it they're now mysterious so (laughs) yes please 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 bi-weekly we'll be on apple make sure you share us with your friends do it thank you for listening to dink justice this episode was edited by myself our logo was designed by katie did doodles check out her etsy she does custom work as well as art from pop culture Pua particularly loves her Doctor Who works, and her customs are amazing. Let her know that we sent you. We also want to thank Goat for our name, since we were both uncreative in finding one. Thank you for listening, and see you in two weeks. 
high and dry. <laughs>